Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 29. When I left off in the last episode, the future King David had just returned from defeating the Amalekites, who raised the Philistine city where he, his 600 men, and their families were living, the city of Ziklag. At the same time, the Philistine army was off fighting the Israelites, led by King Saul and his sons. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. What is seldom mentioned in the modern retelling of the story of David is that at the time, he was essentially allied with the Israelites' arch-enemy and constant antagonist, the Philistines. This week, I'm beginning in the text when David returns with the recaptured women, children, and spoils all recently taken back from the now-defeated Amalekites. And with that, let's get started. When David and the 400 men returned from defeating the Amalekites, they came upon the wide-eyed Bezer. This is the place the 200 who were too tired to carry on had encamped, now that the city of Ziklag was in ruins. The 200 came out, and when David sees them, he salutes them. Some of the 400 who had fought were not very happy with those who had stayed behind. They went to David and made their case. The text is not very kind towards them, saying they were corrupt and worthless. What they said to David was, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may take his wife and children and leave. David defended them, You shall not do so, my brothers. With what the Lord has given us, has he preserved us and handed over to us the raiding party that attacked us? Who would listen to you in this matter? For the share of the one who goes down into the battle shall be the same as the share of the one who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. When David became king, he would make that concept the law of the land. And he wasn't done. When David came to Ziklag, He sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. The spoils were sent to his friends in Bethel, Ramath, at least the Ramath found in the Negev, along with the cities of Jatur, Aroer, Sifmoth, Estemoa, Rachel, and Hebron, along with many other towns. I'll cover these in depth when I get to the book of Samuel. Just know that while he was living with the Philistines, he was making a concerted effort to win favor in Judah, along with many other places in Israel. Which gets me to 1 Samuel chapter 31. This is where the narrative switches back from David into the battle between the Philistines and the Israelites, the one David was forced to leave before the fighting began, where if he hadn't been forced to leave, he would have been fighting against his own family members and allied with the Philistines. Once again, I'll let the text tell the history of the battle, with the usual paraphrasing. As the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from the Philistines, with many dying on Mount Gilboa. Gilboa overlooks the Jezreel Valley, to the west of the Jordan, north of Jerusalem, and south of the Sea of Galilee about 17 miles, 28 kilometers, southeast of Nazareth. As the Israelites fled or died, 
the Philistine army fought their way to King Saul and his sons, killing three of them, Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua. I'll have more on those sons in a future episode. The Philistines pressed onward to the king until their archers badly wounded him. Pausing for a second, it should come as no surprise that either army had bows and arrows as these are among some of the oldest known weapons, at least when you limit the list to those that are technological developments, meaning not merely sticks and stones. And perhaps, along with the spear, one of the first weapons that could strike from a distance. Some estimates have them being developed as early as 7000 BC. I'll let you judge that date for yourself. As for the ones used by either army in this battle, no real detail is given. But a high-performance variety was developed in Denmark as far back as 7000 BC, which would have had the next six or so thousand years to make it to the Middle East. These were such a good basic design, known as the Home Guard Bow, that it's still in use today. There were also bows from Egypt, and at this time, they may have included the Composite Bow, Though these had a downside, they had to be unstrung when not in use and restrung for action, a process that required so much force it was generally a two-man operation. So, while they were more powerful, they were also less useful and may not have been used by the common archer. Instead, these warriors may have used a simple stave bow. The simpler bows were likely to be used by the majority of archers, while the composite bows were used by charioteers, where their penetrating power was needed to pierce scale armor. Which gets me to my point. We were told earlier that Saul wore armor, and now we're being told that he was hit by at least one arrow, maybe multiples, probably from more powerful compound bows, Picking up again in the text. The battle pressed hard upon Saul. The archers found him, and he was badly wounded by them. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, and before I get to what he told his assistant, first a note. We're told his armor-bearer was there, but we're not told if the king was wearing any armor. We're also not told what kind of armor it was. Several years earlier, when the much younger David fought Goliath, Saul had a bronze helmet and likely bronze scale armor. Technology didn't advance nearly as quickly in 1000 BC, so despite the passage of probably a decade or more, he likely had the same type of protection. Considering the archers were close enough to hit him, then he knew the warriors and threat were approaching. The safe assumption is that he was wearing his armor, but that's just an assumption. Unpausing. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, so that these uncircumcised may not come and thrust me through, and make sport of me. But his armor-bearer was so scared that he was unwilling to do as the king commanded. So Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And I'm going to point out something before it slips by. The phrase, fall on your sword, 
is set to date to ancient Rome. But we can see here that Saul did this several centuries before any sort of history like this was being made in Italy. When his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. On that day, the king and his three sons, along with the king's armor-bearer, all died. When the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, and those beyond the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook their towns and fled themselves, and the Philistines came and occupied them. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the dead, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. They cut off the king's head, stripped off his armor, and sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the houses of their idols and to the people. They put his armor in the temple of Astarte, and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. But when the inhabitants of Jabesh-Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men set out, traveled all night long, and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan. They came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took the bones and buried them under a tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. And the last paragraph gives me a few things to cover about the Philistines, Bethshan, Jabesh-Gilead, and tamarisk trees. I'll start with Bethshan. The other two will have to wait till the next episode. Bethshan is in what is today the northern part of the nation of Israel. Sometimes, especially in the Greek and Roman era, you will see it called Scythopolis, and other times it is called Bethshan. And what made the city what it was in the era of King Saul, through the modern period, is its location, where the Jordan River and the Jezreel Valley converge. This allowed whoever controlled the city, in the area immediately around it, to also control access to the west bank of the Jordan and the land all the way to the coast, to Jerusalem, to Jericho, and to the Sea of Galilee. Strategically vital. Of course, like I just covered, it's where the Philistines took the bodies of the slain king Saul and his sons following the nearby battle hanging them on the city's walls for all to see. When the Romans controlled the area some 1,000 years later, it was the leading city of the Decapolis, a league of ten semi-autonomous city-states who were ultimately dependent on Rome. Circling way back, possibly to a prehistory period, ruins of a very old settlement have been uncovered. In the 20th century, a researcher from the University of Pennsylvania began excavations into a large tell in the city. G. M. Fitzgerald wrote that his findings supported occupancy as early as the 5th or 6th millennia B.C., but it wasn't permanently settled at that time. Instead, residents would come and go over the next several thousand years. Sometime around 3200 B.C. and during the early Bronze Age, a more permanent occupancy began and seemed to have lasted. On the north side of the settlement, a large cemetery has been found that seems to date to between 2000 and 1600 BC. 
This was likely during or just after Abraham lived in the region. The area, including the city of Bethshan, was conquered by the Egyptians in the 15th century BC, who were ruled at the time by Pharaoh Thutmose III of the 18th dynasty. An inscription describing this was found at the Temple of Karnak in Egypt. This recording tells of the city being the center of an Egyptian regional government at the time. And with this came a small influx of native Egyptians attempting to govern the region. These immigrants would alter the native culture to match that of their home country and leave behind many artifacts. Also dating to this period is a large Canaanite temple, which of course contained many ancient artifacts. A stele in the temple, interestingly inscribed with Egyptian hieroglyphs, claimed the temple was dedicated to the possibly Egyptian, possibly Canaanite, possibly both female deity of pestilence, Mekel, who took the form of a part woman, part lion. It was not unusual for satellite Egyptian centers like this to have local deities side-by-side with Egyptian ones. So goes polytheism. The stele also depicts a lion and a lioness playing, though it could also be two dogs, but given the deity, a pair of lions is more likely. Weathering of the stone tablet has led to a less-than-clear determination. Later excavations have proposed that this temple was built atop an older temple of a lesser-known sort. The Egyptians would control the city for about 300 years, a time that spanned their 18th through 20th dynasties. And during this time, it seems the native Canaanite population of the city left, replaced by Egyptian administrative officials and military soldiers, there no doubt to enforce the will of the government, serving as agents for their living deity Pharaoh. During the 19th dynasty, it appears the town either suffered some sort of catastrophe or a building boom, maybe one leading to the other, as all of the previous structures were torn down and rebuilt. This included the construction of what's best described as a small palace for the regional governor. Given the general history and knowing what we know from the Old Testament and outside text, it's likely there was an invasion and the city was burnt but that's mostly speculation. Uncovered stela from the period, too specifically, tell a little of the history. The first dating to the reign of Seti I, so between 1323 and 1279 BC. Seti was the son of Ramses I and the father of Ramses II, aka Ramses the Great, and believed by many to be the pharaoh of the Exodus. This stele tells of the Egyptians protecting a native people known as the Apirus from an invading but unnamed Asian population. The Apirus could also be a transliteration of the Habaru people, though these people tended to be the rebels and outlaws, so likely not garnering any favor with the Egyptians. The second stele dates to Ramses the Great's reign, with one interpretation of the inscribed hieroglyphs having it telling of the Hebrews, though this is disputed. Other finds from the period include locally produced pottery that tended to resemble similar items found in Egypt from the same period. 
Other goods that had characteristics from both regions have been uncovered. Whatever was going on in the city came to an abrupt end during the 20th dynasty with the invasion of the Sea Peoples. Of course, many believe these Sea Peoples were the immediate precursors to the Philistines, the people I'm in the midst of covering. In this period, around 1150 BC, Beit Shin, as it's sometimes called, was destroyed by fire. After this, the Egyptians did not rebuild and appeared to have left for good, but the Canaanites apparently did rebuild. Canaanites who were possibly the Sea Peoples and probably the Philistines. Then, about 150 years later, it was part of the lands allotted by Moses as the Israelites prepared to enter the Promised Land. At least the area around it was. There was no mention of the city until Saul's body is hung from its walls. At least in the New Revised Standard in King James, the NIV in Joshua 17 does mention that the city was in the territory controlled by Manasseh. This was well before the text in 1 Samuel. Then, of course, and estimated by some to have occurred around 1000 BC, some estimating with a perceived high level of accuracy as occurring in 1004 BC. Whenever it was, this is when Saul's body was hung on the city's walls. It was then that the battle between the Philistines and King Saul, along with his sons and the Israelite army, the one where he was not only killed, but decapitated. Of course, the text tells us the king's body was hung on the city's walls. There's been no uncovered archaeological evidence that proves this out. But that isn't surprising, as it was over 3,000 years ago and likely only lasted a few days. There's also the potential that it wasn't a Philistine-controlled city, and they were merely an army passing through, leaving their vicious calling card. After what's described in 1 Samuel, later, 1 Kings mentions it was part of the kingdom of Solomon. No surprise there, given its proximity to Jerusalem and strategic value. The next stop in the history of the country comes when the Assyrians conquered the region in 732 BC, led by their king Tiglath-Pileser III. During the battles, the city was destroyed by fire, again, a recurring theme in the warfare of the region in time. From then until Alexander the Great arrived, it appeared that the city was largely abandoned. When the Greeks did come to control the city, they renamed it Scythopolis, a potential reference to the Scythian mercenaries who settled there after the various conquests began to wind down. There really isn't much in the written record from this period, which is especially surprising considering how well the Greeks tended to record everything, possibly indicating that the city was rather small and not of a vital strategic influence, or that while being in Greek territory, it wasn't occupied by Greeks themselves. The archaeological record does provide a few insights. During the 3rd century BC, a large temple was constructed on the hill. What isn't known is who the temple was dedicated to, but it appears to have been in use through the period of Roman occupation. Graves from the Greek period are simple tombs cut into the rock. 
Between 301 and 198 BC, the area was under the control of the various Greek Ptolemies. The city was mentioned in an early 2nd century BC text describing the Syrian wars fought between the Ptolemid and the Seleucid dynasties. Finally, in 198 BC, the Greek Seleucids conquered the region. Then along came the Romans. In 63 BC, Pompey the Great made Judea a part of the Roman Empire. With this, Beitian was re-established and subsequently rebuilt by the Roman general and statesman Gabinius. It did, though, retain its Greek name Scythopolis. The fact that it needed to be re-established was indicative that it either had fallen into great disrepair or had been abandoned entirely. Take your pick. At that time, the center of the city essentially moved from the summit of the hill to its slopes. With this re-emergence, it became a leading center of the Decapolis and the only one west of the Jordan River. During this period, and possibly at least partially caused by the stability brought on by Roman rule, the city flourished. There seems to have been a great deal of urban planning along with much construction. This included a well-preserved theater, a hippodrome, along with a cardo, which is the first time I've mentioned two of these features. At least I think it's the first time. A hippodrome is an ancient stadium used for horse and chariot racing. Think Ben-Hur. About three years ago, I was in Rome for a trip that was a mix of business and vacation. Late one Saturday evening, I went for a few circuits around the real Roman hippodrome, the one in Rome, at least the ruins of it, and only a stone's throw from the Colosseum Forum, the Tiber River, and even the ruins of the jail where Paul was said to have been imprisoned. While it was much shorter than my usual run, it was stirring for my feet to land on the same ground as those horses, 2,000 plus years later. But I digress. Ecardo is a prominent street running north-south, and its name is derived from its meaning. It was at the heart of the city, like cardio. As part of this construction boom, dark basalt stones were mined from Mount Gilboa, which is about four miles, seven kilometers away. During the Jewish revolt of 66 AD, the city was allied with the Romans. There are many ruins from this era, and perhaps the most significant are the tombs. They tended to continue the trend of being cut into the rock and usually had two rooms. Bodies were placed in a sarcophagus, which was then placed in an interior room. There is even one uncovered that bears the name of its ethnically Greek occupant, Antiochus, the son of Pholion, who may have been the cousin of Herod the Great. He is not, however, the Antiochus of Greek lore, but probably named after him. There's also an intriguing Roman grave that includes a bronze incense shovel with the handle in the form of an animal leg or hoof. This piece can be found in the University of Pennsylvania Museum, owing to the digs conducted by Geon Fitzgerald et al. The Roman control of the town and region eventually evolved to Byzantine, when the town became predominantly Christian. 
During this period, a church featuring a rotunda was constructed on top of the tell, and the entire city was enclosed in a wall, likely for the unknown number of times in its history. There were several other large churches in the city, and also evidence of a small Jewish along with Samaritan population. It was hit by an earthquake in 363 BC, when many of the masonry buildings were damaged. All in this period, the history of the city followed that of the region in general. The Byzantines were replaced by the Muslims beginning in 634. Then, on January 18, 749, it was hit again by an earthquake, one that almost leveled the city, and certainly reduced its dominance throughout the region, a reduction that lasts throughout this day. The Crusaders would show up and build a castle, complete with a moat, and would occupy the region off and on for the better part of a century. The Muslims retook the city in the latter 12th century and eventually gave way to the Ottomans. You should know by now how all of this goes. World War I, the British Mandate, and Lawrence of Arabia, who noted that the city was inhabited by ethnic Arabs, though there was a Jewish minority along with Bedouins living below the city in the plain of the Jordan River. The city would become part of the nation of Israel with its establishment and independence. It remains part of that nation today. And that's it for Beth Shan in this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll continue with the history of the Philistines. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.